We're, uh, we're continuing our eight weeks wrestling with Jesus the prophet when he turns his, his journey, when he turns uh, his gaze toward Jerusalem and he's walking toward Jerusalem somehow knowing uh, to a degree what's coming. There's this section in Luke where his, the, the invitational nature of his ministry takes a thematic turn toward being prophetic, highlighting the challenge and the, the costly nature of following him. And inside, if you could just remember this every week, Brian touched on it a little bit last week, but inside of every single one of these warnings or challenges or even rebukes, hidden inside of every warning of Jesus is a gracious invitation. It is just a unique expression of more love, more mercy. Um, and that is the same for today as we talk this morning about the connection between pride, hypocrisy, and self-exaltation. So we're going to be in, in uh, Luke 13, 10 through 17, plus Luke 14, 1 through 11. So it's, a, it's quite a bit of text. It's two different sections. I think when you read it, you'll see why. You'll see why we did this. Um, so... Uh, go ahead and, and on the other side of your uh, paper that you got coming in or on your screen, doesn't matter, um, You give you some time to do our thing, the thing that we do, where you take a moment to read that text, wrestle with it yourself, uh, and then get with some people around you to talk about it. So um, go ahead and take a minute and read it. If you would be so brave to just share with the whole room some of the stuff that you're, that, that you're wrestling with, some of the stuff that... Uh, you sense God maybe showing you in the text. Um, just go ahead and let us know. Raise your hand, and we'll, we'll, somebody with a mic will run over and find you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, I don't know if this is a question, observation, or it's just on something that's just really like just popping out at me. Is just this lady had this spirit for 18 years, and then who knows how long this other guy had his ailment, mm -hmm. and just the idea. I mean, their rest came, their Sabbath came to them. Yes. But. Like lately, I've just been thinking a lot. Like, what were they? How were they coping before that? Right. How How did they get to this point where they're still alive to see their Sabbath? You yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's an answer to that, but that's right. just something that just really caught me. Yeah. There's 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 perseverance in the text to to find themselves in these positions, but I think you you do make a good observation. It is this subtle undertow to the passage about what is the Sabbath. Um. And have these, it's almost like they're sending this person away to say, six days out of the week, you can come do this. That's fine. Or six days out of the week, whatever. But we're just one day, you can't do this or whatever. Go and, go and respect the Sabbath. But is that a Sabbath for them? You can preserve a, a, maybe a narrow perception of the Sabbath for the self. Maybe that synagogue leader or, the, or those Pharisees who are trying to have this intellectual conversation. But are they sending that person away to a Sabbath? And it is one of these kind of undertoes of that text. That's great. We got one here, one there. Good morning. Um, I guess I feel a little um, unsettled when uh, Jesus talks about people that are crippled sure. or that are sick mm -hmm. as it being a, a disease, or not a disease, but more so like a spirit, a bad spirit. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking about Back then, I think either you or Brian talked about um, 
back then when when people had sicknesses or ailments of some kind that it was because of like their parents sinning That's but right. like what about now yeah. like so if somebody's crippled that i know or somebody you know there's something wrong with them you know to normal society does mm -hmm. that mean like a spirit is like binding them like right. should we just be in like always in prayer yeah yeah because there's something like liberation them. mode yeah. yes yeah 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 yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good observation. It is, and I think what Jesus is doing when he does approach these people who have, who are paralyzed or blind or sick or under oppression, and kind of the corporate religious view is that either you did something to deserve that or your parents did, or your parents' parents did. Um, and part of what Jesus is doing is, is cracking open the possibility that that's not always the case. But he, he's not saying that it's never the case but that we actually have to, we talked about this maybe a few months ago, that each case by case, it's discernment. That sometimes, if you're never open to the possibility of a physical issue being prompted by spiritual causes, then you're missing some things. But if you're always attributing, attributing physical problems to spiritual, spiritual issues, then that's not the case either. Uh, and they, it's always kind of this coexisting of both. Um, that's great, that's great. Good morning, saints. Good morning to all of you. In my group here, I discussed the fact that, first of all, Jesus made very clear in Matthew, the Sabbath was made for man. I was made for the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. He fulfilled all law and righteousness in him because he was the creator of all those laws, and he subjected himself to those very laws that he created in his incarnation. Yeah. And he fulfilled that. Not one jot or tittle shall pass away, mm. and it shall be fulfilled. But it's fulfilled through him. Therefore, technically, he's the author and the authority of the Sabbath law mm. to begin with. Yeah. The, I have a BA degree in legal law from Kaiser. And one thing we've learned is that there is we call letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Christ weighs all things in all righteousness and fair judgment. His judgments are different from our judgments. We are judgmental creatures, yes. That's right. But we are flawed in our judgments because of our sinful nature. Mm. It is Christ in his perfect incarnation that weighs all things and knows all things. This is why he could heal on the Sabbath. This is why he could uh, heal a blind child on the Sabbath. That's right. And, and he and he upholds that spirit of the law, in, in the like end, you're talking about. In the last verse in Luke's text, it's really about ethics, and we don't understand because it's again the spirit of the letter, the letter of the law, and the spirit of the law. Right. And it's also not enough churches today really teach on biblical ethics, and Christ is the master teacher when it comes to teaching us about ethics and relationship to him, sure. relationship to ourselves, and relationship to each other. Sure, and, and behind uh, each of these kind of struggles that correct. he's having with these religious leaders and is this question of authority, that, that whether or not he's saying, you know, the, the, that the Sabbath was, is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath now. And this is actually the third, you, some of you guys, is anybody thinking that? I don't need a mic, it's fine. Uh, the, because this is actually the third 
and the fourth time that Jesus is having a struggle with these guys. I'm going to get rid of this if it does it anymore. The first and the second time is this struggle about the authority of Jesus, and that's why they have this wrestling. They disagree that he's the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that he has that, that kind of authority to interpret the law that way, to expand it. If it struggles, I'll turn it on. <clears throat> Thanks for that. Let me, let me just, because the mics are weird, can I just pray for us and jump in? Um, Lord, we, we, God, we entrust this time to you. Every time we as a community come to your word, we, to the best of, of, of the, what we know about ourselves and what we know our, about you, we surrender beneath the authority of you and the truth exposed in your word. And we come to it wanting to be shaped, wanting to be uh, uh, chiseled by you. And so, God, would you open us today to see uh, what you have for us? Would you give us the courage, Spirit of God, to respond? We're desperate for you. We love you. It's in your name. Amen. See, I put the, I put the first two sections together because it's a similar story. It's a similar story. The third section, which is a continuation of chapter 14, it's just an immediate continuation. I include that because you usually wouldn't include that with these uh, 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 sections. Because immediately after, at the end of this text, uh, 14.11, he talks more about banquets. He talks more about dinners and who you invite to the table. And it's usually included with those lines. Uh, uh, And I think it should be. It has a lot to say about that. But... I think it's important to realize that he has this dialogue with them, and they're totally silent. They don't know how to respond. I think they do know how to respond. They just don't want to. <laughs> they're totally silent. And he immediately responds with this kind of dialogue about a wedding. And I actually think they're connected uh, to this, this wrestling with the Sabbath. I want to explore this morning the connection between hypocrisy and pride. You see, Luke has this knack uh, uh, as we're going through, you'll, you'll start to see these trends in Luke, the way that Luke writes. And Luke has this knack for using, intentionally using the details of setting to help communicate, to help uphold the thing he's trying to say. And I think the, the spatial and temporal placement of these conversations is key. That, that these conversations are happening in a synagogue on, on the Sabbath that these conversations are happening in the house of respected religious leaders on a Sunday. It is almost as if the places where you would least expect it, you find evil. See, pride can twist every good religious principle into allies of the purpose and powers of evil. Didn't you know that Satan can still have dominion in the church on a Sunday? Didn't you know that Satan can still have dominion in the preacher's house? All it takes is a little pride. All it takes is a little pride. You see, just like the before, the Pharisees have this visceral reaction to Jesus being so bold, so daring to heal or liberate on the Sabbath. And when they have this visceral reaction, this gut reaction, what Luke says in this text, indignant They respond with indignance. They frame that reaction, that gut visceral reaction, they frame that reaction as a theological disagreement, 
as a disagreement on the interpretation of the law. Uh, what constitutes work? That's what they're disagreeing on. Of what is and what is not work? But Jesus doesn't actually ever engage in a theological framing of their reaction. Jesus doesn't respond to this guy, this synagogue leader, and say, well, tell me more about that. Tell me more about your inter interpretation of work on the Sabbath. What is and what is not allowed? Tell me more. And tell me why you see that. And Jesus also doesn't try to defend his own view. He doesn't try to explain why liberation of the oppressed and healing of the sick or the lame or the broken is not constituted as work in the law. He doesn't try to like go into this kind of like theological dialogue. He doesn't agree with the framing of that visceral reaction of the Pharisees as really just a misinterpretation of the law. Jesus wants to have a heart conversation, not a theological conversation. There are six days for work. And, and how, by the way, how passive-aggressive was this moment for Jesus to heal this person and for the guy not to talk to Jesus but just turn to everybody who watched. Just to, those of you who saw that that just happened, six days for you people to come and get that done. That's fine. He'll be here sometimes. Uh, six, we got six whole days for you guys to come and get that done. Not today. What's the problem? It's very simple. What's up? Just wait till tomorrow. Doesn't talk with Jesus at all. Just turns to the whole everybody watching and has this conversation. Super passive aggressive. Very passive aggressive. But Jesus doesn't ask about the interpretation of that law. Instead, he asks, here's the question Jesus asks. Why is it that animals get more compassion from your heart than a sister? He, because you've you got to understand, again, contextually, there's, there's multiple different um, groups of, of uh, religious communities in this time. You, in the New Testament, you see sometimes Sadducees and Pharisees compared to each other, or, or you see them mentioned. There was another group called the Essenes, and the Essenes were like very, very literal. I mean, they were like rigid, about the, more rigid than the Pharisees. And one of the things that the Essenes and the Pharisees actually disagreed on, had like a, had like a line in the sand disagreed on, was treatment of animals on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had actually like created a line, like a, like, a, like a real dividing line between them and the Essenes because they decided that it was okay, it was permissible to actually uh, uh, feed, water, untie your animal, care for your animal on the Sabbath. It was okay. Essenes didn't do that. They were like literal. The Pharisees were like progressive on this issue, live, raging liberals on this issue, caring for their own animals on, on the Sabbath. And that's why I'm not, I just need you to see Jesus isn't just like picking some random example. He's picking an example that the Pharisees have chosen to be a hill on which they would die. A theological hill on which they would break fellowship with other people. The kid, their own care for animals. And those animals actually help them. It's very self-serving. I don't want my animal to die on me. I've got to be able to feed and water them. And what he's saying is, you would listen, explain to me why you would treat animals as a hill to die on, and why the care for animals would prompt your heart to actually consider other ways for the interpretation of the law. But a, but a woman, and not just a woman, a woman who is your sister in the line of Abraham, and not just your sister, but a woman who is under the impression of evil, and not just a woman who's under the a sister who's under the impression of evil, but one who has been so for 18 years. Why is the concern for this woman in your heart not leading you to at least question your interpretation of the law? 
the same way in which your concern for an ox would lead you to do that. Why is it that your heart, what you've just exposed to me, is that your heart has a higher concern for an ox than this sister? Explain that to me, your heart. I, we'll have a theological conversation later. That's fine. This is my first question. And they are what? They are humiliated. They are exposed. The desires of their heart, the concern of their heart is exposed. You see, sometimes you want to make exceptions to rules for certain outcomes, but you don't care to adjust those same rules for other outcomes. And the things, the rules, the laws that you like love, and then the ones that you struggle with, they reveal your heart, the concern of your heart, the makeup of your heart, the desire of your heart. And that's what he wants to talk about. A couple weeks ago, I, um, I went out for, my wife and I went out for ice cream with um, Derek and June Scanlon. We got all of our kids together. Are Derek and June here? Okay, good. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so we all went out for, for ice cream. We went to Donation. Has anybody been to Donation yet? It's downtown. Yeah, so basically they, they uh, it's dough, the word like bread, like dough, like cookie dough, and then the word nation. Donation, it's downtown, it's new. And I guess it's, uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure how this works, but it's like affiliated somehow with Metropolitan Ministries, and you buy stuff, and some of the money goes to ministry. Basically, somebody just told me, look, we could go here, and you can eat ice cream and cookie dough, and it serves and loves people. And I was like, good, we're good, let's do it. <laughs> you don't even have to tell me. I mean, it could be like 1%, and that's all the motivation I need to not care about my body anymore, and I'll just go eat two scoops of cookie dough, two scoops of ice cream. I'm just trying to serve and love the city. That's all I'm trying to do here. So we, we, it was like 6.30 on a Sunday. The place cl closes at 7, and we, my wife and I, we, we go to check out donation with uh, Derek and June and all the kids. We get there like 6.35, 6.40, and there's a line out the door and coming down the, the sidewalk a little bit. And uh, we pull up, and I was like, geez, I don't want to do this, but, you know, we're already here, and they're coming or whatever. And so we get out of the car, and I get in line, and Jamie's super pregnant, so she sits down somewhere and takes Landon, and then they show up, and Derek was like, well, the only reason we're waiting in this line is because your wife wants ice cream, and she's pregnant, so we're doing it. And <laughs> uh, So we wait in line, and uh, we get all the way up to the door, and one of the workers comes outside and says, everybody who's here, come inside, cram inside, and I'm going to lock the door. It's like 6.40 maybe, and they close at 7. But he, they're basically saying, the, the amount of time it's going to take to serve all the people who are here, it's going to get us to 7 o'clock. So we're not, we're not adding any more people to the line. So we get inside, we all cram inside, and, and my wife and, and June and all the kids, they sit in, at this table outside, outside the front door, and Derek and I go in, and we're going to get stuff for the kids. So Derek and I go through, we get the stuff, and we, we get ice cream, and we're coming to the front door, and it's, by this time, it's about 6.55. And uh, there's a family outside the door, and the, the dad of that family is just standing at the glass door. And he's knocking on the door. He's trying to get this worker's attention who's like kind of guarding the door. The door's locked. And he's like, the, the dad is like knocking on the door, yelling, trying to get his attention. And the guy's just refusing to work with him, talk with him. And Derek and I come up and we realize the, the dad is standing there waiting for somebody that has to come out. <laughs> and Derek and I come up and we're like, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. 
we have to get out, but we're so sorry. We're so So the guy unlocks the door, lets us out, and this dad just comes and gets in his face and just starts going ballistic on this guy. He's like, it's, it's, you guys close at 7, it's 6.54, let us in. Like, he's like freaking out on this guy. And he's like, he's like, take me to your manager. And the guy's like, I'm the manager. You're talking to the manager. I've explained this a hundred times. You know, he's like, I can't pay people beyond 7 o'clock, so I've got to guess, like, how many people are going to get us to 7 o'clock. I can't let anybody else in. Like, I have to cut off somewhere. I'm sorry it's you. Like, you can come back tomorrow. And the guy's, like, yelling, and, and the, the horrible part is, like, we're, we're sitting right outside the door. We're just listening and watching this happen. And, uh, and the guy has kids, like, two or three kids, and the kids started saying, like, yeah, this bad boy. Like, they're, like, freaking out. <laughs> Like, they're doing what their dad's doing, and they're, like, yelling, like, boo, we don't like donation. And, uh, and eventually the dad, like, nowadays, back in the day, it'd be like when you, you, when you were, like, in an argument like that with somebody at a storefront, you come to blow, it's like, let's, like, I don't, if you're, like, raging mad, it's like, I'm going to punch you in the face. Nowadays, what that is, is I'm going to write a v- review when I get home. <laughs> so the guy drops that bomb. He's like, you just wait. I'm, when I get home, I'm going to write a review. And the guy's like, okay, dude, I'm sorry. And then they all, like, the whole family walks off. And Jamie and I and, and Derek Jr. were all sitting at the table, and we're just like, oh, my gosh. Like, should we have done Should we have said Should we got in the middle of that? Is that a place where you get in the middle? Or you say something? Did we just betray God? What did we do, what did we do here? And uh, eventually, and we're kind of like, those people were crazy. Like, it's just ice cream, and it's for, it's for donations? What is going on? Like, it's just some, what, was this worth it? We're like... Just like, these people are insane. And eventually, it was either June or Jamie, I can't remember which one, but somebody posed the question at the table, gosh, if we were here five minutes later and we were the ones who got locked out, would we have reacted the same way? Now, that's a Jesus question. Because that, that poses the question, Did I, are we only liking this rule, this standard, this law, not because, not objectively loving this rule because it represents justice and love and peace and it ushers us into a better society or somehow, but I like this rule because it served me. But the moment that this same rule, which I love, and this is a great rule, they did this well, the moment that we're the ones who are locked out, I hate this rule, it's a dumb rule, it's stupid. And I, to, 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 just to confess to you, I mean, the moment that question was posed at the table, I immediately knew I would be that guy. I would do that. I would be the one standing at the door waiting for it to be opened. I would be the one like trying to get in there to get some ice cream because I brought my kid all the way downtown and it's in the middle, it's it's like Sunday evening and blah, blah, blah. I'd be the one at the end saying, I'm going to write a review. This is ridiculous, whatever. I know, like in the past, I have been that way where I'm like wronged in some way and I like just go way too far, freak out. And if I just remember in that moment, if they, if the people, they kind of posed the question and then we just didn't really talk about it that, that much. And I just remember thinking like, if they knew that that was my heart, I'd be humiliated. I'd be exposed. I'd be humiliated. That's the question that the Pharisees and the synagogue leaders refused to entertain. I wonder if we hold tightly to these laws because these laws represent the wholeness of the love of God in a just world and they, they, they usher us into the care and concern of God's heart, 
Or do we only hold to these laws because they benefit us, our authority, our position, our status, our power, our comfort? And what if, what if, what if I was the one, synagogue leader, what if I was the one who was subjected to spiritual oppression for 18 years, could not stand up straight, and Jesus happened to come and offer me healing on a Sunday? What would I want? What would I do? You see, it takes humility to ask that question. And you know the Sabbath isn't bad. We're Sabbath people. Like, you, you should take a Sabbath, totally. Do your Sabbath. That's great. It's amazing. But there is this possibility to defend something true in a way that is aligned with evil. If your defense comes from a self-serving heart, this benefits me. It's the reason I love it. It's the reason I like it. See, this hypocrisy emerges from the inability to ask these hard questions of the heart, to see these hard realities about the heart. And I think Jesus responds with this final teaching. When he has this moment and they respond with silence, and he responds with this teaching, I think he's exposing that we are blind to the conditions of our heart by our pride. The inability to value the lives of others, to see the image of God in others, to love, the others the way, love others the way that God loves them, I think that's because we overvalue ourselves. A few, a few years ago, I was an usher at a wedding of one of my wife's cousins. So that's how you become an usher, by the way. It's like you're kind of important, but you're not important enough. You're in that weird in-between place, <laughs> relationally. And then you become an usher. And when you're an usher, has anybody, anybody been an usher at a wedding? It's very confusing. It's very confusing. Because an usher, the, the, the role of an usher is never actually defined. It's always like the last thing thought of by the bride and groom or actually never thought of by the bride and groom. And you're, what you are included in, when you are included in the bridal party and when you are not included in the bridal party is always up for games on every individual thing. And it's different between every wedding. Do you go to the Saturday morning brunch with the bridal party or not? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. I don't know. Uh, do you, do, are you a part of the picture session? Do you get in the limo and go around and like, find all the cool places with the photographer or whatever, or do you not? Uh, do you go to the sit at the head table uh, uh, in the reception, or do you not? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. I don't know. It's different every time, and basically, because the bride and groom never actually think about it ahead of time, they're just making decisions on the fly. It's like totally intuitive, and you're just kind of like going along with the flow. That's the life of an usher at a wedding. And I was an usher at uh, my wife's cousin's wedding, and there was one other usher, a guy that I didn't know. I, didn't, I didn't, had no idea who he was. And we showed up on Saturday for, like, the, the photo stuff before the wedding happens. And as, like, pictures are being taken, I just kind of, I don't know what I'm supposed to be in and what I'm not supposed to be in, so I just kind of sit in the back. There's, like, this little, like, we were in this park, and there was, like, this little water retaining wall, and I just sat on this wall. And occasionally, they would be, they'd be like about to snap a picture, and they'd be like, where's Lucas? What's going on? Where's Lucas? And they'd see me, and they'd be like, what are you doing? Come on. Like, come get in the picture. And I'd come, and I'd get in that picture, and I'd be like, yeah, cheese. And then I'd go, and I'd just sit at that thing and just kind of watch everything happening. The other usher was the opposite. He, he tried to get in every picture. And they'd have to be like, they'd be about to snap the picture, and they'd be like, what are you doing? Go. What you, this, is not, this one's not for you. Just hold on. Just wait. Wait, wait, wait. Just hold on, we'll do yours in a minute. I mean, it'd be like bride and groom, and then this guy. <laughs> this is not your thing. This is not what we're doing right now. 
the guy comes back to me about halfway through the, the, like, doing all the pictures, and he sits with me, and I don't know him, and he just says, man, it seems like you're doing this thing better than me. Um, you know, what, uh, how do you know, how do you know the pictures you're supposed to be in? And I just said, look, man, I just think it's a better strategy if I could coach you for a minute. I just think it's a better strategy because you don't know and I don't know. I think it's a better strategy to sit back, assume that you're not in any picture, just sit back and wait for them to just invite you into the picture. And then you get to go and get in, and then there's no humiliation. You know, afterward, when they're like, dude, get out of this picture. And he's like, dude, that is, that is like brilliant. <laughs> he's like, that is amazing. He's like, have you been an usher before? <laughs> Where did you learn that? And I said, I said, actually, man, I learned it from Jesus. And I was like, Jesus, has a, Jesus talks about weddings very similarly, and he just said, like, look, don't, don't take a high place at the table and get in a position of honor, and then they have to tell you to get out of it. Just sit back just, and let them invite you forward, and that's really honoring or whatever. And he's like, man, I will never forget his response. He was like, man, who made Jesus an usher? Isn't he, like, best man? He, he's like, Jesus is best man status at least. That's what he said. <laughs> guys this is this is what it means i just i've always remembered every time i study this passage i always remember that conversation with him this is what it means to be to 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 be given over to the pride of life to be to be to to, to have your life saturated by self-exaltation to constantly take the place of honor in the table of life, it is to live as if every picture is for you. It is to live as if every moment is for you, about you, needs your input, needs your voice. And you cannot see others with the love of God when you cannot see past yourself. You cannot receive the honor and the exaltation of God when you've gone grabbing for your own version. And this gracious warning from Jesus is that you can humble yourself, humble yourself, or you can undergo the humiliation of being humbled. You can check your heart, you can check the desires of your heart, or the, the, your heart will be exposed to the world. You can check it, or he'll check it and expose it to the world. I kept thinking this week about Peter's public error in the New Testament. You know, Peter was the, Peter was the one in the New Testament where, where he, you know, the, the New Testament church kind of trying to figure things out, and Peter received this dream and then a, another vision, and basically he was receiving this revelation from God that the kingdom of God and, and this, this, this new salvation that Jesus had created for us was, was not just for Jews, but it was also for Gentiles. The Gentiles were actually included in the people of God now. And Peter was the one who received this revelation. And he took that revelation to the leaders of the early church. And they were like, all right, I guess we're doing this thing. And eventually there was this season where Peter was serving at this church in Antioch. And this church in Antioch was like an, like a, an incredible New Testament church. It was uh, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic. It, it was. It had every tribe, tongue, and nation. I mean, it was. It was Jew, Gentile, and actually, it was probably majority Gentile. It's a Gentile movement of God, 
And Peter's there serving, and it says, that, it says that Peter enjoyed table fellowship with the Gentiles. That he would actually enjoy the honor and the community of table fellowship, of sharing a meal with the Gentiles. But eventually, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he started kind of like being a little concerned about this church in Antioch. And there, were, there was a little bit of a controversy about whether or not Gentiles had to become, had to embrace some of the Jewish customs to really be saved. It's fine for you to be included in the kingdom of God. That's great. The salvation of Jesus is for you, absolutely. But you also have to become Jewish. You also have to, to avoid certain foods. You have to be circumcised, all this kind of stuff. And James was a little bit concerned about what was happening in Antioch. And so he sent some of his leaders down to Antioch just to see what's going on. And, and uh, Galatians, when Paul's kind of talking about this, this event, Galatians says that these people from James, these friends of James came and Peter was so, it says that he was afraid of criticism and that he wanted to kind of like appease these friends of James, really appease James. And he was afraid of criticism. And so he stopped having table fellowship with the Gentiles. He kind of broke fellowship with the Gentiles and would only eat with the Jewish people. And Paul had to publicly confront Peter to his face about this. And it was not a theological issue. It was a matter of the heart. It was a matter of the heart. And Paul has to publicly confront, publicly humiliate, publicly expose Peter. He has to humble Peter. And somewhere, we don't see the, the details of, of that interaction afterward, but somewhere along the way, Peter changes his mind. He's swayed. And then P Peter and Paul together go all the way to Jerusalem to have this conversation with James and they do a similar thing. It's not as confrontational, but they, ha they, have to, they have to bring up this controversy. And even James, in that conversation, James is swayed in this public confrontation. Did you know that two times in the New Testament, it says these, a, 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 a version of these words, humble yourselves before God, and He will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And both of those times are Peter and James. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he, in due time, he will lift you up. Take the low seat and let him exalt you. Don't go clamoring for your own exaltation. Don't think of yourself too highly. Don't be ruled by pride because then comes hypocrisy. And you will be humbled, but humble yourself and trust God to lift you up. The worship team would come up. I want to wrestle with that idea, how to respond to that idea. I mean, what, do you, what does it mean to humble yourself? What does it mean to take the low seat? To grow in love for others by letting go of the exaltation of yourself. In my own listening to Jesus this week while engaging with this text, I actually decided to start reading um, Paul's rebuke to Peter in Galatians 2. I decided to start reading that as if it was my rebuke and, and just to start to wrestle with that, chew with that. And there's this line in Paul's public rebuke, public confrontation of Peter that I wanted to share with you that stuck with me. Paul says this, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law which was tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law so that I might live to God. 
I was wrestling with that all week, thinking, thinking about how there, there is no system of rules, there is no system of law that can lead you into life and life abundantly because there is no system of law or rule that can actually capture the heart of God. There is not. But we are law builders. <laughs> we are rule makers because we like, we, we're, we're people driven toward control and independence and clarity and certainty. And we want to know if I'm good and if I'm better and if I'm right. Uh, uh, and I want to have control of my own destiny, all this kind of stuff. And we become rule makers and law builders. And I started wondering, are there rules that I've made that the poor and the needy would come in the midst of those rules and provoke me to defy those rules? And I wouldn't. I wouldn't because I had trusted in those rules to lead me into life. And in so doing, I would actually align myself with the powers of evil by further marginalizing marginalized people, just like these texts. And I started wrestling with these rules that we build. What are the laws that I have rebuilt and trusted in? I remember two years ago, we were leading a house church on our block in our neighborhood, and um, we, we decided for two or three months to go through a manuscript Bible study of Second Timothy. And on our block, there was this, uh, this uh, elderly African-American woman named Fern, and she was kind of like the matriarch of the neighborhood. She'd been there forever, and uh, uh, she's this amazing woman, and she was um, of the Baha'i faith. And, and the Baha'i faith is a little bit complicated. I won't go into it a lot, but basically it, was, it, it had some universalist undertoes. Like everybody has, everybody's worshiping the same God, but in different ways. Everybody's like partially true, but not totally true. And we can just kind of be together, learn from each other. Um, and so uh, she would always have these interfaith prayer meetings in her house, and she would have these interfaith dialogues in her house and all this kind of stuff. And we loved her, and, and Land, my, my son Landon loved her. She loved Landon. But we had this open standing invitation to her to just come study the life of Jesus with us. And we told her the day, the time, we just said, hey, anytime you want to, if you want to come and share, share at the table with us, eat a, a little bit of a meal and just study the life of Jesus with us, we'd love that. Um, and, you know, for, for several months, she never took us up on it. And then one night, she came after dinner, she came when we were in the middle of our study, and she just wanted to jump in. The problem was, Fern was blind. And she came in the room of a group of people, InterVarsity alums, several of us, who are ruthlessly committed to manuscript Bible study. Inductive manuscript Bible study. That's how God speaks to people. It's one of the only ways, inductive manuscript Bible study. And we like, you know, we, we'd always have the passages that we'd print out and there's like no numbers on the verses because that'll jack you up, you know? So you gotta, you, gotta, you just gotta, gotta put all the words on the page, pass out to everybody and you get everybody markers and you mark it up. It's just like the way we did things. It's like we, we grew up in the university world. We love that. And I still love that. Look, I'm not dogging. I love that kind of Bible study. But this blind woman comes into the room and what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Are we going to do inductive, marker-filled manuscript study with a blind woman in the room? And I, I, we, we tried to do this little hybrid thing where we like gave everybody passages and you marked it up and then you're like trying to talk about it, but, and, but she can't see anything. And so I, we're also trying to do a little bit of devotional and say stuff. And it was, so, it was just so messy and so jacked up. And I think to this, to this day, I think that moment, that situation exposed us. It exposed a rule, a law we had built, 
around manuscript Bible study. We were so ruthlessly committed. This is the thing that we do. This is the thing that we love to do that we didn't actually know how to interact with God or with people without it somehow. God graciously invites you to humble yourself by bringing to you and to me holy interruptions to your rules and to mine. And I think we can graciously respond. We, the way that you humble yourself is to respond the right way to those holy interruptions of the rules that you've built. Interruptions to break your rules for the sake of love for other people. And your heart is exposed when those holy interruptions are seen as annoying distractions. What are your rules? And can Jesus interrupt them? Your law can be built out of social expectations, family expectations, religious expectations, vocational expectations. Listen, a, a nine-to-five work day and work-life balance, those are good things. Those are great things. Awesome. Amazing. But, but kingdom ministry never fits neatly in a nine-to-five. And if you hold strongly to that version of work-life balance, to that rule, you will, you will disqualify. You will become so ineffective in kingdom ministry because needy people, people who are curious, people who are, who are in trauma or distraught, they don't fit cleanly in a nine-to-five. I love principles of family night and movie night, but if a domestic disturbance is going on next door and somebody comes over to your house to ask to either stay and hang out with you for a few minutes or to come over to their house to try to mediate, are you going to be like, oh gosh, what's, this is so frustrating. This is family night. This is so important. No, family night's great. I love family night. But guys, sometimes the kingdom of God will send holy interrupt. Jesus will send holy interruptions to break your rules. And it's a heart check. Every time it's a heart check. It's a heart check. Where is your desire? Are you jumping, leaping to, to, to jump into those moments with people? Are you frustrated? Are you annoyed? Gosh, why today? Six other days you could come over. Why today? Check your heart. Humble yourself. Maybe you have a weekly study night and somebody comes knocking on your dorm telling you they're wrestling with suicidal thoughts for the first time. Are you frustrated by that? going to jump in. Check your heart. Humble yourself. Somebody with a learning disability comes to your gathering and you can't go quite as deep as you'd like to in the study. Are you bothered by that? Or do you love it? God will send holy interruptions to break your rules. To check your heart. And in those moments, those are gracious, merciful invitations to humble yourself, to check your heart. Receive them. In that, in that rebuke from Paul to Peter, I just want to read that, a little bit longer of that rebuke to end our time together. He says, for I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of the law, which is already tore down. For when I try to keep the law, it condemns me. So I died to the law so that I might live for God. And my old self has been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in him who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Guys, on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And when you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. You eat it in remembrance of what I've done to deliver you from those systems of rule and law and to lead you into life in the heart of God. And in the same way, he took the cup of the new covenant, poured it out, saying, this covenant is the new, is, this is the new covenant of my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, when you come for the elements, you come to have all of your rules placed on the table. All of the, the things that you do to discover security or worth the things that you value, you put them on the, the table and you say, these are good, these are right, these are true, I like these, but they're all, they belong to you and you can interrupt them anytime, anytime. And if my heart strays from you, God, this is the question this morning, if my heart strays from your heart, would you expose me? Would you confront me? Would you lead me into humbling myself? And if I don't, God, if I will not humble myself, would you humble me? Would you humiliate me? the mercy of that. This morning, would you come the elements given for you?